Welcome back to the Anti-Failure Podcast, where we talk with small business owners to understand how they use failure on the road to success. I'm your host, Chris Kendall, and today I'm chatting with Josh King. Josh is the founder of Trickstar Shoes, a specialist cheerleading footwear brand that launched its first product just over a year ago and is now stopped across the US, EU, UK and Australia. Welcome along, Josh, and thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Chris. Let's get started just with a little bit of your story of the journey so far. Yeah, right. It's been a big journey. So, yeah, starting my own cheerleading shoe was, you wouldn't really think that that's the first thing you've got to do when you leave university. Yeah, right. Or when you want to kind of venture out into your own. Yep. Yeah, the journey started back a long, long time ago, if I break it down. Yeah. I think the best way to describe it is that you feel lost for a number, a number of years and you know you've got something. But how do you find what it is that you're supposed to do? Yep. And were you feeling that in when you had bigger roles? That was something that was missing? Yeah, I've worked in uh, the corporate world. So I've certainly had my diversity of roles uh, yep. throughout the corporate world. And yep. you just know that, hey, this is great and this is safe. And I can uh, really make a, a long career out of this. Uh, yep. However, there's this burning sensation within myself to go, there's, there's more. Interesting. And I've always had that. And I guess the journey really started when high school, and I was failing miserably at high school, <laughs> major behavioral issues, yep. expelled in year 10. Right. I was, certainly was not afraid to uh, stir the pot with the teachers, you know, getting used to getting in trouble yep. almost, uh, yep. to the point where I had to go to a non-mainstream school just to complete my year 11 and 12. Right. Uh, so they were super supportive, but yeah, there was already a lot of setbacks there. And unfortunately I took my education for granted. So I always felt like I had this burning ambition. And I yeah. think that's probably one of the key elements that saves me was this key to being ambitious. So some that, sort of fire in the belly. There was, yeah. And that fueled the motivation. Mm -hmm. And that made me seek out, well, what is that driver? And mm -hmm. so I left high school, I, quick, I was also under the impression that everything was easy. Uh, and unfortunately I had maybe to get us on the journey, right? Massively. But mm -hmm. I realized I had no guidance and it's really interesting to look at hindsight now and look back, but having no guidance, no, absolutely no one. And you try and figure out how does everyone else have their shit sorted? Right. How do they know where to go? Yeah. I just could not figure that out. I just couldn't figure out how everyone knew what to do yep. while they were going on this journey. Yep. So that's where being lost really started. Mm. Uh, but not. But then that also made me realize, hey, you need to figure this out. So now here comes your journey to figure out the whys. You know? yep. uh, and that's why I have worked in a lot of different categories or different industries yep. uh, because I didn't want to get complacent Right. because I felt as if I hadn't figured out that why yet. Mm -hmm. So yeah, left high school, warehouse jobs, forklift yep. driving. Yep. Quickly realized the world is not uh, easy going. You don't just get this great job and then buy a house, which right. is that naivety from high school. Yep. Uh, so How long do you think it took you to realize that? Uh, probably about seven years ago. Oh, no. Well, yeah. After the first warehouse job, yep. uh, you quickly go, wow, I'm only earning $16 an hour. What are you doing? That yep. quickly hit. Okay. Uh, still lost. had no idea. I went traveling for a bit and then realized, hey, I should go to university. Okay. Uh, that's where... I should really start to pick up my education. And it's interesting, a lot of people say, oh, I don't need a uni degree or university did nothing for me. Right. For me, it's the other way around. Yeah. Like, geez, it just, maybe it was also maturity uh, coming in and I could take. Uh, you were there because you wanted to be there rather than being told you yeah, had to be. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
and and maybe that was some of the flaws in the high school era. I was just, I was just immature. Right. Uh, so that was, I think, a really key journey because it was so hard because you're doing it all by yourself. Yep. You now become this somewhat warrior and you've already built up a level of resistance mm -hmm. where others may face difficulty. You see it as, oh, well, I've already embraced this at an early age. Right. So, yeah, uh, going to university was the best thing. I moved up from Melbourne. Yep. Uh, so I was from the out eastern suburbs of Melbourne, a little suburb called Eastmont. Okay. Uh, moved to Manly. I didn't even know where Manly was on that. <laughs> so right. Best beach in the world. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Impulsiveness also comes right. with the nature of how I was acting. So I would happily just pick up my life and move. Uh, Interesting. So that was, I guess, a bit of a bonus, yep. having this mentality. I don't care. I'll just pick up and go. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. She'll be right. Yep. Uni was great. Studied a business degree uh, and graduated. Sydney? Uh, yeah, at ICMS. Okay. Just here yeah. on the yeah, yeah. Manly campus. Yep. Uh, and that was interesting because I went from a community school where you didn't have to wear uniform. Right. And and this was a school where a lot of people from juvenile detention would go back into. So that's Is that right? Level of, yeah. So they wouldn't go back into a mainstream school. Right. They go to a high school where it's very small but very student focused to ensure that they don't end up in juvenile detention. Yep. Not that I ever went down that path, but that was the school I ended up. Interesting. So I was in a, a mix of kids that came from really harsh backgrounds and you know that was a level of reason as to why they were there too. So going yeah. from that environment to then a private college right. where you had to wear a suit, that okay. was mandatory, certainly uh, going from one end of the spectrum to Bringing the other. Bringing discipline that perhaps you hadn't embraced along the journey. Yeah, but I loved it. I was like, I said, when I wanted to go to uni, I want to wear a suit. <laughs> When you're Fantastic. working on the warehouse floor and yep. you're it's sweaty or it's freezing cold, yep. you go, I want to work upstairs. I want to be in the office. I want right. a temperature controlled environment. That was yep. my goals. Okay. It's not very great, but you it's go no. from a warehouse floor. Yeah. Yep. That's what I want to be. Yep. So yeah, we, we graduated from uni. That was phenomenal. I was in the Australian Olympic committee. That was my first office job. That right. was like, wow, this is, this is incredible. And just gave it my everything. Amazing. I just worked a number of jobs. But yep. during this, this journey of being lost, I figured at least do something that will be a stepping stone to where you want to go. Because you have okay. no idea now, but you know what? Being so diverse and yep. not one dimensional mm -hmm. will help. And I always knew that from the start. And yep. now in this position, I can honestly say that was, yeah, that is something that really helped because now I've got experience in event management. I used to work, yeah. we're working for the Fairfax events. We did city to surf. Now I'm out. So next weekend I'm going to the national cheerleading championships operated by Cheercon, and I'm going to set up my own Trickstar cheer shoes vendor booth. Fantastic. So now you're bringing- But you had that, that guiding pole, if you like, the way you were headed. So things were all leading you towards what you ultimately wanted to do. Yeah, and that's how the world and how it all opera uh, worked out in that favour was mm. pretty crazy when I look back on it. Mm -hmm. It took a very long time Yep. Uh, and learnt some really key lessons. Uh, mm -hmm. And one of those was when I was at Pensolta's Footwear Design Academy operated mm -hmm. by uh, Dr. Dwayne Edwards. Okay. So I was working at Fairfax Media. I decided I want to get into shoes. Do you, do you remember what it was about shoes? That yes. When I was at university, I used to work at Rebel Sport yep. at Warringah Mall. Yep. And when, when the sales reps come in mm -hmm. and you go, wow, you had the Nike sales reps here, the Adidas sales reps here. So the, the prestige or the mystique. Yeah. And then you'd hear about all of the technologies that they put in footwear. And mm. I love human movement. So also growing up, martial arts played a big part in my life, karate and type of kickboxing. That was all I did. And then I just played AFL just for, to, to have that team sport because right. I was so used to doing an individual sport. Yep. 
So I learned a lot about the human movement and biomechanics and I loved that. And that was just like, whenever someone said, oh, do what you love to do. Mm. Oh, well, I love sport, I like human movement, but I don't want to be a physio or right. a personal trainer. So you're kind of like, oh. Saying that, I did become a personal trainer for about six months. Yeah. Uh, so I had this understanding of how the foot works. And I love it because the, everything starts off from the foot. Right. And another key lesson I learned was when I was in Canada, uh, just before university, I did a working holiday just because yeah. I didn't know where I, what, what I was supposed to do. Sure. One of the guys who was fitting up ski boots said, your whole experience starts off with your feet. And if your feet are uncomfortable, no matter what you're doing, True. your entire experience will be either great or horrible. And that stuck with me. And I went, ah, oh, shoes, okay, boots, whatever. Anything to do with footwear. Yeah. So then when I saw that, oh, I heard all these sales reps come in from Rebel Sport, I was like, yes, this is great. I understand what they're saying. Yep. Um, how the foot lands on the, uh, sorry, how the shoe lands on the, on the surface and the three gait cycles. Yeah, yeah. Heel strike, mid stance, toe off. I get all this. This is great. Okay. Yeah. Then after a year, you start to call their bullshit. <laughs> you go, no, 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 no. That's just crappy marketing. Right. And then I just went, I could do a better job than this. Okay. Bit of naivety. Uh, but you go, you know what? Like, you know, that detention kid. Oh, I'll just, I'll just disrupt this without a thought. Yeah, I right. could do this. You know, you set big goals. And and how did you zero in on cheerleading shoes? Oh, I originally spoke to a friend of mine. So I had studied all the design in North America. I was even on a TV show designing shoes for celebrities. Yeah, talk about that. Yeah, right. Yeah. After that, uh, I caught up with a friend of mine in Melbourne and he said, you should do cheerleading shoes. He owns a few gyms okay. down in Melbourne. And I went, yeah, okay. Then five years later, I went, hey, I'm, I think I'm ready to start something here. I've got a few different brand ideas I want to do. And he brought it up to me again. And I went... Yeah, right. I might, I might have a much deeper look into this. I do remember you saying you should do cheerleading shoes. So yeah, you do a yeah. quick external analysis. You look at the players. You look at the current offerings. Firstly, I thought your major players would be operating in this space. And then I went, oh, okay, maybe it's too niche for them. Right. Uh, so, I, yeah, I looked at what the current offerings were. Straight away, you have to look at the problems. Yeah. Uh, it, it's just simple. Shoes, you got to um, solve problems. Yep. So I saw that there was quite a few problems. Yep. I went, I could solve this. I could make them look better. I could make them more durable. Right. And so I went to the drawing board. Fantastic. And you mentioned the uh, the YouTube yeah. reality show. Tell us a little bit about that and perhaps some of the things you learned. That's a pretty pressure cook environment. Yeah. Uh, what did you learn out of so that? This is, and when I mentioned Pensol, this was also through Pensol again. So yeah. I, I did a uh, one-month design study course uh, working with Under Armour, which was incredible. Yep. And then a year later, the design of reality TV series appeared to which yep. I was casted. Yep. This is where I learned the true lessons of failure. This was incredible because not only was I placed in a pressure cooker, but we also got to hear how Dwayne rose from having very little to now becoming the creative director of Jordan brand. And he designed right. Jordan shoes. Yep. And his story yep. was remarkable. He was the only person who didn't have a, a university degree back in America. Yep. So he did it just through raw talent. So hearing his lessons, uh, and if I had to say the biggest lesson he gave us straight away was you're 100% responsible for everything. And you go, okay, yeah. that's easy to absorb. And then you carry on with your life and it doesn't mean anything. But then when you really start to break it down and put that into your lifestyle, you understand causation. You yeah. understand that, hey, 
everything i am responsible for everything 100 and when this stuff up happens mm. even if you your ego says i'm not responsible for that i'm not taking ownership if you're to break it down there will be some point in that journey as to which yes you are responsible for and, and, and wow. do you use that analytics or that that sort of tool in in evaluating root cause it changed my life right that's where i went oh okay and then when you do realize you are responsible for everything when you do fail, it's so much easier to pick yourself up, right. ensure that failure doesn't happen again. Yep. What actually happened? Because you're able to then break down every process and you're breaking it down so it, uh, that failure will never happen again. And can you give us an example of one of those failures where you did apply this or, or something that you thought would be catastrophic that actually apply the tool that you learned? I mean, there's so many good example. I'm just trying to think there is a recent one where I wasn't 100%, but then I said, you know what, I am. Yeah. So when designing the shoe and we did the prototypes, we did six prototypes, yep. we've got the shoe perfect. And okay. we go to your manufacturer. All right, guys, here we go. Let's do a full production run, 3,000 units. And you get the shoes. You just think, yeah, these are going to be amazing. They're just exactly how they were on the prototype that I received. And yep. uh, you start sending them out to market and then you start getting faults. Interesting. You just go holy that's the worst thing you could pull like that that would break people straight away yep you've got three thousand units they've got faults and now you yeah what do we do with it so you go right i didn't make the production run so obviously i'm not responsible i wasn't on the assembly line mm -hmm. but when you go this is my fault i am the business owner i'm mm -hmm. now responsible for the stock i have on hand mm -hmm. and who wears it and their experience right so a tylenol moment yeah <laughs> Oh, and it was heartbreaking. So how did, you, how did you recover from that? Or what, what steps did you take once you realized? So you create a QA process. Yep. And a lot of companies actually don't do this. In order to remove costs, to mm -hmm. improve their margins, they get rid of the quality control. Uh, yep. Where I went, this is now my focus, key focus, mm -hmm. hyper focus on QA. Mm -hmm. So every shoe we now go through very finely to ensure that there are no faults. Mm -hmm. And there was even some hidden faults. So faults that I wouldn't even know how to QA. So the inside of the heel started to peel away on some of the shoes. Okay. And it was just a, it was a bonding issue. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, these have already gone out to market. Yep. I've got to take responsibility for this. So yep. that's when you also use service. So one of those key problems I also identified was this whole entire industry is lacking service. And I actually thinking about it now there's a lot of service that has been cut mm -hmm. uh, a lot of product services that we receive it's just very little so this was like i will do everything to ensure that everyone has a good positive experience with my shoes yep. and if they do come across a fault that i've missed 100 percent will replace it yep and through that service alone they become oh wow i just had a great experience yeah it's fantastic yeah. by it's now, when I had those faults, I went, right, let's go through the entire stock and QA it. That's a ginormous job. So I hired people to do it. Yep. Uh, and then I thought, yep, once we're finished, I'm going to evaluate uh, the stock. And then I found that there was a lot of issues that they'd missed. Mm -hmm. So you just going, oh, my gosh. Where does this stop? I've just got to do it. I've got to bite the bullet. Yep. But by owning that and telling myself that I am responsible, mm -hmm. you just put your work clothes on. Yep. And you just get into it. Yep. And you don't have any resentment because you know that this is a part of the process. Mm -hmm. Because now my manufacturer, and I also realized this at the start, they're going to have to fail in order to create a great product. They've never uh, produced yep. a cheerleading shoe. So I knew that they were never going to produce a cheerleading shoe uh, perfect. Yeah. The shoes that 
didn't have QA issues were phenomenal. Right. We sponsored Team Australia. Yep. And they wore the shoes. Fantastic. And they came first in their division for the yep. first time ever. That wow. was, and that was a big risk because if there were issues with the shoes or something happened on the stage, yeah. they would have gone, we never wear trick stars again. Yep. So that was a big risk I took and just prayed that the shoes, <laughs> I knew the shoes would hold up once I passed the QA process, but just that they performed the way that I designed them to perform. And it sounds like your reflection on this situation is that it, unless you're going to acknowledge that there's a problem, the ability to fix it yes. is impacted. Yeah. So you could have told yourself a story. It's okay. It's just one pair. It's not three thousand or two thousand nine hundred ninety-nine pairs. But you you made the effort to go through the entire stock line. What else did you learn about the production of shoes that you help that helps you now in what you do? So I also have a very close relationship with the manufacturer, and that's why I'm really lucky. And I bring those competencies into my brand. I've got speed to market. I can create a sample within two weeks. Mm -hmm. Most other brands or uh, most other business owners use a sourcing agent mm -hmm. and they could take up to six months to get a sample. Yep. So I utilize those competencies really well. Uh, when I discovered these faults, I wanted to know, and this is at the end of COVID, so we could finally travel. Yep. So the other month I went to China mm -hmm. and I went to one of the factories and I looked at the production line and I wanted to know, hey, where are these issues happening along that line? I right. want to ensure that every measure is now taken. So I met the, uh, my manufacturing owner. I met all of his senior managers. They're all run by a South Korean. So they're very detailed orientated. Okay. Uh, they don't like to produce anything that has faults. So they have the same standards I do. Yep. And it was an amazing trip. And so by, by being open and honest with each other, rather than saying, this is your production line, these are my shoes, you were able to solve problems. That's actually a very interesting point. I treat my stakeholders like they're my customers. Mm -hmm. So you're actually right. A lot of people would fall into that trap. Yep. And this level of entitlement is thrown out the window. Just right. because I'm a paying customer, the moment you start speaking to someone like that, they will just, you'll start to get limited answers from them. Mm -hmm. uh, so I treat them like, my, like they're my actual customers. Like I'm doing them a duty mm -hmm. and the level of return I get is phenomenal. And in many ways, it is uh, a mutually beneficial way to approach it because their success is defined by your success. Yep. If they're not feeling the design the way you want it, then, but if you can't talk about that, you can't fix that problem. Absolutely. So have you had some examples where you've been able to course correct and avoid a quality issue by having an open relationship with the production? Yes. So when I had these first batch issues, I said, let me come up with a design uh, implementation to the current model we have. Interesting. And I said, I want to fix these eyelets. I want mm -hmm. to re-stitch the inner to mm -hmm. make sure the heel doesn't come apart. I sent a full report. We had lots of meetings over it. Yes, I think this can be done. Then I received the new sample, which is like the, the Trickstar Altair 2.0. Okay. I blew my mind. Right. It, it, this is now a knockout product. So let me get this straight. A production issue caused a separation you picked it apart, changed the design that would help production be better, and so were part of the solution. Uh, absolutely, and then they also uh, filled in the gaps. Yep. It's one thing to show the, the, the issues and the solutions on paper, mm. they're the ones that actually got to make it happen. So I've got to trust their abilities to come up with innovative ways through material mm. uh, and, and, and uh, procedures mm. 
to create the solution that I wanted. And they went above and beyond and created a solution that now everything's a thousand. And now everybody's bought in. Oh, yeah. Right. So it's not a case of you sitting there pointing the finger saying, you produced the problem. Instead, you said, I designed the problem. Yeah. And now I can redesign it. Yeah. Interesting. Because everything's my fault. So where do you think that concept of ownership responsibility came from? I mean, here's a kid who's struggled through school. People have put you in a box. You haven't done well. You've not. Where do you think that sense of, I'll use the word empowerment. It's a word I use a lot. Where do you think that sense of creating win-win comes uh, from? You know what? When I So I learned this during that TV show. Uh, yep. yeah, everything's my fault. And, uh, and there's another point that we can touch on about that during that design show where you know, we were failing in a safe place. And that's a really key failing driver. Cause that, and Dwayne said, it's all right. You can fail here because you're failing in a safe place. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm on a bloody TV show. Like, everyone's competitive and yeah. like, I've got to beat there. Yeah. yeah. But then, and this is something I've noticed in life, like you'll get told something really valuable. You won't take it on board straight away, but a year or two later you go, oh, now, now <laughs> the lesson sinks in. Mm -hmm. So where I started this, as you say, empowerment, mm -hmm. is when this generally happened is that when I came back from the design show and I went back to my normal job at domain.com, Yep. Uh, which is under the Fairfax umbrella at the time, mm -hmm. uh, I started to test these ways. And we're dealing with real estate agents, conversation, ideas to get the best for them. And then this is where I learned the, the simple philosophy of create a triple win. I win for me, I win for the real estate agent, I win for the real estate agent's customer, mm -hmm. uh, which I now look at with uh, the business I'm in now. I'm the shoe provider. Mm -hmm. I work a lot with the gym owners and the win also comes through the actual end consumer. So we now got to create this triple win. Right. So by taking on this full ownership of, I am responsible because if, I, if there's a break in that chain, well then the end consumer is not going to have a win. So there goes my triple win. So I started to explore different ways how to utilize this dealing with real estate agents. And I did have some wins. I think one great example was, you think outside the box, I was pushing a digital version of a check-in app. Mm -hmm. uh, so when you go to an open home, back then real estate agents were using pen and paper. Yep. And you just got, as the dinosaur age, what are you doing? Yep. Hey, Domain, I've got this uh, app and you can check in digitally. And then a lot of people were like, no, you're telling me to, or trying to persuade me to change behaviors. Mm -hmm. So I went, yes, I am. How about if I went to the open homes pretending I'm looking to buy a house? And then I say, why are you still using pen and paper? And so I did this. Right. And then I got meetings booked. And I went, oh, okay, this is, like, I actually took ownership of the process. I just work for the domain. I'm now I'm, I'm going to open homes on a Saturday, just trying to get a meeting so then I can show them the app. Yeah. And then domain created a really safe environment for me to test this out. Interesting. And that's where I just started to reshape the way I think. Yeah. I am responsible above everything. And I even incorporated that into my personal life. Fantastic. There's friendship breakdown. So, you know what, I was probably a bit arrogant then or I was, I was, a, bit, I was a bit stupid and hot-headed. That was my fault. Fascinating, fascinating connection of different ways of building. It's all relationship building, right? And that is exactly my biggest power. So it wasn't my grades at university. Yep. It's purely networking and relationship building that has actually got me to where I am today. And can you think of examples where you've applied these principles to try and build a relationship, but you've been met with resistance or a wall? How do you, how do you break that down then to, to realign? Yeah. So when I first launched Trickstar, uh, we had this product 
and now I don't have any customers. So how do you tap into that? <laughs> and I actually, I had no authority to right. go into the cheerleading industry. I hadn't, I was a cheerleader maybe 17 years ago, recreationally yep. through my friend, did it for about three months and that's when I decided to go to Canada. So realistically, I had no, no one in the industry. Right. So the cheerleading world would be like, who's Josh? Who's yeah. Trickstar? Yeah. Why, why, why would we buy into you? You're disrupting the ways we've always done it this way, so why now? Yep. So, uh, and my partner, uh, my partner's been a great support and she just said, get on the phone and start cold calling. I hate cold calling. Yeah. But all right, I'll, I'll cold call. Yep. And then, hi, I'm Josh from Trickster. It was the hardest thing I've ever done because I didn't know what my value proposition was. Right. Because I'm making the call and I go, what's my purpose? Yep. Hi, I'm Josh from Trickster. We've just launched a new cheerleading shoe. Then what? Yeah, right. Okay, okay I'll give him a free pair of shoes. Hi, I'm Josh from Trickstar. Uh, I've got a free pair of shoes if you'd like to test and try out. Yeah. Okay, so my pitch now started to become a bit better. Okay. Yeah, no, we're not really interested or we don't like to carry stock. Mm -hmm. You go, All right, fair play. You're a cheerleading gym. You're not going to sell shoes. I get it. You can test and try it out. But then what? Yeah. So I kept calling and kept calling and I wasn't really getting anywhere. I was yes. getting some good interactions, yep. but then that fell short from a business goal. Right. So then we went back to the drawing board and we went, how can I really capitalize straight away from the first point of contact? Yep. So we created this gym referral program. Okay. Uh, my friend at the time said, you just got to look after gym owners, look after gym owners. And I, I, I thought that's just like looking after real estate agents. Yeah. When I was in that domain. Different, this is, different context. Yeah. And I had some key wins there and I'm always looking for that emotional differentiation. Mm -hmm. in everything I do. And this is why I also love footwear because with footwear, you can tell powerful stories through design, color, and material. So now I'm creating emotional differentiators, not just right. trying to say, hey, there's a trick star, features and benefits from a product point of view. Oh, they're, they're super durable, they're super comfortable. Yep. But how can I tie it in emotionally? So I created this trick star gym referral program. Uh, we have a floor size mat. Yep. Uh, it has all the silhouettes of each shoe that we have in the size. Yep. So an athlete can size themselves up We've got a QR code that takes them straight to our website. I put a unique gym discount code yep. for that gym. Yep. And every and every time an athlete uses that code, they're incentivized by having 10% off. Right. Well, okay, yeah, great. And then we give the gym owner a referral rebate. Fantastic. So then now- So everybody's bought in. Yeah, because now I'm giving back to gym owners, which I want to do, mm -hmm. because their influence is worth something. Mm -hmm. And they have to be rewarded for that. Yep. And if they're going to especially push my brand, yep. I will certainly reward them for that. So now at the end of every month, I give out cash rebates because I can generate a sales report on that unique discount code. Right. And I give them a rebate. Fantastic. And now they're not carrying stock, I'll handle all the customer support issues. So now when I call or even meet them face to face, hi, I'm Josh from Trixo, would you like a pair of, pair of free shoes? Test and try out. When you like the shoes, can I give you a Trickstar size floor mat Right. And I can now give you uh, a certain amount for every sale. So now I went from, hi, I'm Josh from Trickstar. Yeah, we're a tissue brand. Yeah. To now having something that you can deliver the promise. Yeah, straight away. And now I can book a meeting. Here's your mat. Excellent. And, and where do you think that sense of what we're talking about here, I think, is customer service, satisfaction, the whole experience of it's not just about the shoe they buy. It's about the experience of... How did I get involved? How did I make the decision? And what is the follow-up, right? Yes. The customer journey. Where do you think that sense of superior service came from? Well, I see. It didn't come from your teachers giving you strict 
No. <laughs> no. Uh, a big part of it is also removing my ego. Okay. Everything I do. I certainly didn't do this to create myself you know, with any sort of notoriety. It wasn't to make myself a CEO. I don't call myself that on LinkedIn. Right. I just yep. call myself a manager. That's it. Yep. So there's no association. So once you remove the ego, and I also feel as if that we are more powerful when we serve. Mm -hmm. And you go, I like to now serve. I like to make people happy. Right. And if my value proposition is really strong, my end goal is to not make money. It's to see shoes, my shoe on people's feet and then be happy. Yep. They go, wow, they're wearing my shoe. This is incredible. Yes. So now I want to deliver a superior service. And through the various jobs I had in the corporate world also, uh, as I think domain was a big one. Now you're servicing B2B clients, especially real estate agents. Mm -hmm. And I had a knack for just focusing on the one percenters. Mm -hmm. Hey, I'll call you back in 10 minutes. I'd actually call back in 10 minutes. Hey, I'll get back to you on this email. Yep. Oh, geez, you replied back straight away. Mm -hmm. And you go, I'm getting a lot of good wins from this. Right. Just from focusing on those one percenters. Yep. And I, th I think I've got a unique formula to please people that have not been serviced. Right. And I also have a bit of a pleasing nature to me. Yep. You want uh, people to be happy. Yeah. It yep. can be a, a both a pro and a con. For sure. And you talk a little bit about the whole making it safe to fail. How do you make it safe for people around you to fail? Yeah. Because uh, at the moment, uh, it's not as safe anymore. Okay. Uh, so I don't have the security or the safety net of working for an employer. Yep. or a big corporation yep. where now it's your dollars it's yeah. your reputation it's yeah. your yep 100 so how do you make it safe now you have to be very calculated i also like sport as a safe place to fail okay uh, that's a great example you uh you try not to fail on the football field but you can fail at training okay try and test and try things yep how do i make that work now in what i'm doing mm -hmm. do you have a network of people who you can bounce ideas off who you can talk to about it or is it really just not I'm going to no. knock this out and figure it out myself because I've had to do everything myself right. even through high school I, you know there's no one there you can so only rely on yourself however in saying that though my partner she's yep. been phenomenal right and right. she is a marketing director so she mm -hmm. has that strategic critical thinking abilities that I will go you know what just because I run my own business doesn't mean I can make a decision straight away and be like, yep. well, I made that decision, so it must stand. Yep. I'm very democratic with how I go about things. And so I will ask, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. She'll go, you're an idiot. Don't. <laughs> I go, yeah, you're right. So she saves me a lot. Okay. Because I don't think if she was around, I would have made some, I would have overcommitted. That probably could have cost me a lot. So you must have an example where you can think of that you did overcommit and and the outcome was not what you were expecting yeah there was one i told a swedish cheerleading gym that i could sponsor them mm -hmm. uh, it was only about 24 shoes okay uh then i realized the cost of shipping shoes from australia to sweden and uh, it was going to be like two thousand dollars right. australian i just went i don't have that in my cash flow mm -hmm. i don't for, for shipping mm -hmm. so i went I, sorry I can't right and I will do I will move heaven and earth to rebuild yeah. that relationship I will then go there I will probably even pack 34 shoes but it will have to be next season right so I went oh I probably should have checked shipping I assumed shipping would be half reasonable right so that was on me 
that's totally my fault because I didn't do the due diligence to check. But again, it's this sense of responsibility that said, hold on, what did I contribute to this situation? Not about them, but about you. Yeah. Yep. And they were right for asking. And I saw value. And you wanted to do it. It wasn't a case of wanting to correct them or not. Yep. It was a case of, oh, I've miscalculated here. Absolutely. So, and do you have a relationship with that gym now? Yeah. No, we still do. Uh, I still said, look, yeah, I would love to. Yeah. Yep. And we'll pick up that conversation next season. Did you share with them the truth of the situation? Absolutely. Experience so that you were transparent? When you lie or you are shady or you try and bounce around what it is, like people are not idiots. Right. And they will pick up on that straight away. And, and it's hard. pretty quickly. Yeah. And it's hard, like, because you get an overwhelming sense of anxiety when you're about to have a hard conversation. And it's not nice, mm. but you have to be upfront. Yep. Absolutely. And I just said, hey, look, yeah, I miscalculated it. The shipping's actually quite expensive. I didn't expect it to be that expensive. Yep. I'm trying to find out ways, uh, but I just don't think I can make it happen. Right. And that was devastating. I, so, what will you do differently next time? I won't be able to sponsor smaller teams i have committed to other european sponsorships yep um but i will but you do it within a framework now that you've learned as a result of oh yes yeah yeah because it's a key market that european market for me there's a lot of well the cheerleaders yeah massive and they're they're fantastic Mm. uh finland is second in the world when it comes to yeah uh the world rankings or they were when i first started Mm -hmm. um and i actually went over there last year Mm -hmm. no contacts nothing stayed at a backpackers mm-hmm. uh where i was sharing a room with five other people interesting i was snoring because i got no sleep <laughs> and i just went door knocking and it's what you need to do right yeah yeah again responsibility and stops at my feet i'm going to figure this out and if you ask for nothing you get nothing interesting interesting so that was another great win i had just from taking that leap yeah. having no meetings booked jumped on a little scooter rode around helsinki knocked on door gyms and now they're my exclusive distributor. Yeah. Where do you think this sense of or value of giving it a go came from? Where, can you think of any time during your childhood where actually someone did pay attention or where do you think that self-belief comes from? There was probably a time because, yeah, no one was pushing me at all. And, it's, and when you're in that situation, I'm not supposed to be where I am on paper. I'm supposed to have taken that warehouse job Yep. And just be a forklift driver for the rest of my life right. and playing it safe. I'm sure you had teachers along the journey who told you that's what your destiny is. Oh, no, they, 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 the way I was playing up in school, they would have thought jail or oh, a right. drug addict or something yeah. along those lines, yeah. uh, especially in the area I grew up in. So I just remember going, Mum, I need a job. And she'd be like, unfortunately, she didn't work when I was growing up. Okay. So I grew up on Centrelink. Yeah. Uh, father passed away when I was one. Okay. Uh, he died from a workplace accident. Oh, wow. And so because mum opted for that traditional uh, stay-at-home role, yep. yeah, yeah, we had no income coming in. Wow. And so you'd get like $10 a week if yep. I raked the leaves up and did all the chores, yep. uh, which I hated doing. So I went, I need more money because like, I don't even have a BMX bike to ride around and all my mates have a BMX bike. Right. So she said, well, Josh, you have to just go knock on people's doors and ask for odd jobs. And so you did. Thinking about it now, I would never send a kid to knock on random doors and say, hi, I can have an odd job. But I did that. And then every door I'd knock, you'd get this overwhelming sense of, oh, what happens if they say no? 
and you just you build yourself up and you knock hide you have any old jobs getting around yep and you get a million no's uh, but then you got a couple of yeses and you went oh i created that opportunity and 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 each of those no's is still a learning opportunity did i yeah. pitch it wrong did i ask for the wrong yep wrong job to do or yep so that sense of curiosity it sounds like you're like trying to figure out if they're going to say no how do i get to a yes yeah uh, every no is one step closer to a yes. I remember hearing mm. uh, early on in my corporate days. Yeah. Uh, but it's also that resilience to go, well, I've had 10 no's in a row. I may as well just give up. Yeah. You know, but I haven't got anything yet. I can't. There's a million houses in my area. I'll just go to the next one. And you talked about the cold selling or the, the phone calls. What is it that you don't like about that process? Or what is it that you might do differently now? You talked about value proposition. What will... What is it that you learned out of that lack of desire to make cold calling that you now use it as a technique? So this is a really cool one. I, I tell myself that I'm actually doing these people a favor mm -hmm. by letting them know what it is I'm trying okay. to present to them. I don't want to say sell, but present yep. or share information to them. Yep. So when I'm on the call, I'm excited because... I've got one of the best cheer shoes on the market. I'm pumped to tell you about what it is that I can offer you. Yep. And you're going to want to know yep. because we sponsored Team Australia and they did really well. Right. Why wouldn't you want to know about this? Yep. And I could apply that to anything. Now, I genuinely believe that I'm doing you a favor by calling you up. Chris, how are you? I'm Josh from Trickstar. Have I got something for you? But I'm genuine. I'm authentic. Yep. yep. Uh, that's how I Interesting what I learned or what, Someone said to me a long time ago, I also hate cold calling. I, I, it's a fear of mine. But they framed it in a way it's just another opportunity to have a connection with another human being. Yeah. And if, if, if you go into a conversation with someone to say, look, I just want to have a conversation. Who knows where it's going to go? Oh, I'm, I've got this thing that you might be interested in. Or, you know, what? by having a conversation... You get to learn what are their problems, what are they faced with, what's their pain point, and then we can figure out how to figure that pain point. Do you apply that same principle in getting feedback for shoe design? Yes. Uh, there's a couple of, uh, once I have an end product, I know I've already arrogantly now mm. with an ego, I know that I've produced a shoe that is better than the competition. I know yep. we're more durable and I know yep. we're more comfortable and I know we're better looking. Mm -hmm. When I did the uh, testing phase, so I had completed all the designs on paper and I had my first prototype. I sent the shoe down to Melbourne, an elite cheerleading gym. And I said, thrash it and let me know everything that's wrong with it. Yeah. And one of the key lessons I learned also from Pencil was feedback, feedback, feedback. Mm -hmm. Whether you're in the corporate world and you want feedback on your own performance, yep. which is really hard to absorb. Mm -hmm. We all yep. hate that. But when I started incorporating feedback, uh, that changed a lot. And that's how you mitigate failure. Uh, because you're telling people, you're asking people to tell them what's wrong with your product and it feels shit. You yep. just, you know, yet you get that sick feeling in your gut. You oh, have to go back to the drawing board. I now have to ask my manufacturer, hey, sorry, sorry. I have to change the design again. Yep. Manufacturers, they don't, we've just finalized it. Yep. So now you learn to push the envelope a little bit more. Interesting. I said, hey, look, it's critical because I need to remove X amount of rubber because the feedback was I, they're not feeling the foot properly. And now these are problems that you can't really assess during the test room. Yeah. Yep. So then you get the second sample. Uh-oh, I need to change the design again. And we did this six times. Wow. Uh, but that's what it took. 
So feedback has proved to be a very valuable tool. And it's better doing that six times than ordering 3,000 yeah. and then having to replace that entire, because yeah. it's all got the design flaw. Yeah, yeah, correct. So that was a very valuable lesson. So it sounds like, you know, in, in your industry, feedback is the key to quality product, right? Yeah, and when we were first learning about shoes, uh, it was always feedback. And when you, you settle, and this is really crazy because when you settle on the design, whether you're a shoe designer, a color material designer, a brand designer, mm -hmm. you're emotionally now connected to what you've created. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to hear change You don't because you're emotionally sold. And I saw that with other designers receive feedback and push back straight away mm -hmm. uh, because their mind wasn't open enough to receive that type of feedback. Uh, so one of the lessons we learned was incorporate constant development mm -hmm. so right now i have an end product but i'm still looking at ways to make that end product better yep and so when you do discover oh, sorry when you do receive feedback mm -hmm. you've got to be super open to take to it to receive it and then to implement it we, we talk about this in our business turning the dial right? right you've got the channel you know that it's working but you've got to tune it and fine tune it so it's turning the dial it's no longer reinventing the shoe and if in fact the feedback is you need a complete redesign, be open to that because yeah. there might be better opportunities as a result of that. Is that does that resonate for you in the in the shoe design? Jeez, you just you just I actually remembered when I first had my shoe, we did a complete redesign to the shoe that we that led us to the shoe we have now. So the shoe I originally proposed to my manufacturer, we worked with it, but he just said, No, I can't produce this shoe. Right. And I went, Oh my goodness, all right. And he said, this is probably what I recommend, go down this path. Okay. So I went, I've spent six months on this design. Right. Oh my, I've even got a tech pack for this design. So all your architectural yep. drawings yep. To, to the millimeter. Right. I could have pushed back and said, I want this shoe. I could have allowed my ego to say, no, this is what I've been working on. I want this shoe, make it happen because you don't know the consumer. I do and I know what they want. Yep. No. All right. What do you recommend? So then we recreated, we did the redesign yep. and it turned out to be a much better product. Fantastic. How so, so by being open to feedback, even if you didn't want to hear it, you're here, you've got your, your proud shoe and they're saying, but wait a minute, you've got some production issues. We need to rethink. Yep. And it, it all comes super easy when you remove that ego mm. because I'm not digging my heels in. And when you're a hundred percent responsible for everything, you want to make the best decisions. Right. So you also become open with who you trust yep. and you have conversations, uh, vulnerable conversations. What, what do you reckon? Should we change this shoe? Yep. Not I'm stubborn and I'm going to go in this direction. This is what I'm going to make. Because too often you see that happen and then it fails and then you go, did you not listen to the people around you yep. that were saying or even hinting? Yep. So in, in, can you trace that back to the uh, reality show where you're designing a shoe for James Harden, as I think? Yeah, was. yeah, we did and, a shoe for James Harden. Was he giving you feedback at the time? And you, like, where did you break down this ego ownership of a shoe design? What the show was, so the celebrity we designed for was only there for the presentation. So, oh, right. But we would work with their shoe designers. Yeah. We would work with the VP of Adidas Originals or the yeah. vice president yeah. of... Uh, Adidas running right. so we had access to all these amazing people sometimes you got brutally shot down so what we would do is on day one there was five days of filming so you had day one you 
get introduced to your celebrity and you've got to start creating the story. You've got to start creating that emotional connection. You've got to figure out, we've got to quickly learn their life and then how can we create a story about that and then create a shoe based on that story. And it's that whole emotional differentiation I love with footwear. So we would come up with ideas and then Dwayne would come around to each station and go, right, pitch me your three best ideas. Yeah. All right, excellent. So we're going to do this. Nah, hate it. That's not going to work. What? Yeah. You do your three ideas and you say, come back to me in an hour. And he says, but this is going to be the real world. Like yep. when you're going to be working for these companies, mm -hmm. uh, that's the pressure that you'll be under. Mm -hmm. So now you start to work with that pressure mm -hmm. and you start to go, well, you could easily sink or swim here. Yep. Uh, and that was where the kind of failing in a safe place uh, really took a, took effect. Right. And then removing that ego because you shocked the system so much. Right. But now you just got to roll with the punches. Yep. Because you're like, no one's taking bullshit here. So you better clear your mind and come up with something. There was one time I could not, it was for um, Eddie Juan. He was best known for Fresh Off The Boat. Okay. And he had his, his own TV series about his life. Yep, yep. Um, I could not think of a shoe to come up with his life story. And I remember I was, everyone had gone to bed and I was in the studio by myself with the cameraman. Yep. And I'm trying to break down and trying to ideate as best as possible. Yep. And then just uh, at 2.30 a.m., it just struck me. Oh, my God, I'm going to create a sleeker. Right. And so it's going to be a slipper and a sneaker yep. and combine it in one. Because in his culture, when you uh, yep. go over yep. to, uh, say, his house, you take yep. the shoes off, but yep. you wear slippers. Yes. So you wear slippers inside. Right. And I went, yeah, okay. So in that culture, you can wear footwear inside, but nothing from the outside. Right. So I wanted to bring that in. And then I had some really cool uh, design takeaways for that uh, story of this indoor shoe. Yep. Uh, so yeah, that was really, I actually named the episode, episode five, the sleeker. Very good. Well, clearly creative solutions are, are what you're about. And it was hard because they remove all of your outlets because it was a pressure cooker. Yeah. You're only getting four hours sleep. I would go to the gym, I would play sport. You release yep. that energy, the yep. stress is gone. But by episode five, you're ready to explode and go red, red, let out steam. Do you apply those principles now? All the time. Anywhere where you need to create something, whether it's a process, as long as it's more, I can create an efficient process with how I ship a product out, anything, uh, constant evaluation, constant development. The whole, we've always done it this way is probably the most toxic thing you could ever say as well as also hear someone else say to you, it's all, especially now, you've got to be adaptable and also being coachable. It's hard to be creative if we're going to hold a standard and we can't do it. We, or we need to continue doing it the way we're doing it. Yeah. yeah. Can you think of an example along the journey with Trickstar where you thought you had the perfect solution and then it was so badly received that you just had to start over? Or by making decisions along the journey, you avoid those big pivots or course corrections? I have to say, I actually had a couple of other businesses while designing Trickstar that I failed miserably in, which is where I took those learnings. And actually Trickstar was a quite a smooth process, relatively speaking, compared to the two businesses I did have. And so this now falls under the Area One umbrella because I created a parent company, Area One, and now Trickstar is a company that sits underneath. So I had two other brands and I, had this brand called Soulmate and it was a shoe similar to Skechers in a way uh, it was at a lower price point mm -hmm. and I went well I used to work for Skechers I know this consumer really well they're gonna love this shoe 
So I bought in $20,000 worth of stock, uh, all these nice shoes, and I thought I'd sell it straight away. Yeah, priced it at about $89.95. So it's a really good price point. Mm. Uh, long story short, I've still got three quarters of the stock in storage. Right. So right. that, and you commit heavily. I went straight to a ad agency. Yep. Because all you ever saw was join up a marketing agency and they'll make you all this money. And that couldn't have been further from the truth. My, unfortunately, my experiences with marketing agencies has been horrendous. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, I probably also didn't have the greatest product for them to leverage. So that comment is slightly unfair. So we spent a lot of money on ads, mm -hmm. didn't get the ROI. Uh, I wanted to do maybe B2B sales. No one's really buying that. That whole mum and pa store, that yep. where stores yep. uh, quickly is diminishing. So I failed there because on paper, it looked like I was on a winner and I'm still holding the stock. So what would you do differently as a result of that learning? So what I did differently is that we're now looking at Trickstar. We, we haven't used a marketing agency. We haven't relied on ads. Mm -hmm. We've gone, we can't let what happened to Soulmate happen to Trickstar. So build up genuine relationships and ensure that they're-, they're Yeah, yes. And ensure that their consumer needs this shoe because at the end of the day, we're trying to solve problems. And with the soulmate shoe, I wasn't really solving problems. I was introducing a, another variable in a saturated market, a slip-on women's shoe. Yep. Very saturated. Even if the price point's better, there's a million other shoes uh, right. like this one that, you, that uh, uh, consumers can purchase. So that's where that whole direct relationship building as was a core fundamental strategy that we, were, uh, we started with straight away. Yeah, fascinating. Talk a little bit about, as the small business owner, everything you talk, 100% responsibility, that comes with a heavy burden, right? So the, there's all sorts of things, marketing, uh, relationships, accounting, uh, bookkeeping. Uh, how do you manage the, all of those demands and try and still have time for your partner? What, what tools and techniques do you have to use to make sure that you're not stretchly thinned across all of those demands? This is something, especially as a guy that's you know, had some loss and you just learn to bottle everything in and I still do this and it's horrible. And what happens is that I have become really stressed from this to the point where it manifested in a physical form where my whole neck seized up for oh, well. months yeah. and I, I had to turn with my shoulder just to, just to look 90 degrees to my left. That's how severe it got at some stages. And I manage everything on my own uh which comes with its burden unfortunately you've got to sacrifice your social life uh which actually COVID did really well yeah um, so that was a great timing uh you've got to sacrifice your own health to a degree by not going to the gym not playing sport yep. uh or e even just catching up with friends you had mm -hmm. to sacrifice that mm -hmm. uh and this was really hard because you go yeah how do i ensure that i'm still across everything and you don't have burnout and do you, do you have tools or techniques that you use or do you notice when you're starting to feel that stress, pressure, whatever? Yeah, the, the only technique I've only ever used is that sleep is fundamental. So I've actually reduced my burnout by sleeping as much as I can. At first I was taking some sleeping formulas and they were great, I was getting some great sleep. Everyone's going on melatonin. You go on melatonin, I quickly realized, oh, I quickly heard that your body needs to produce that naturally, so don't mess with that. Sometimes I'm out of bed by 9.30 in the morning, which is different because what we've all heard, especially when you hear the rhetoric online, is you've got to be up at 4.30, you've got to seize the day. 
that's great if you're going to bed at seven o'clock that night, yep. but you need your sleep. Right. And by sleeping, yep. I'm in a much better frame to make better decisions. I'm less irrational. Yep. I'm less irritated and I'm not jumping down people's throats and I've got the patience to deal with other people. Yep. And because I've had the sleep, I can work until 7 p.m., have dinner, yep. but still feel great. And that's been my biggest game changer. So uh, listening to your body physically, it sounds yes. like it is something that you take seriously. And any physical hacks, uh, supplements that can help keep you healthy, because I think your health is most important. And clearly your production facility is an outsourced operation. So do you use the outsource model in other areas of your business or do you do the marketing, you do the selling, you you have other people that are on the journey with you? Just my bookkeeper and accountant agency to set up all the all the um, yeah. uh, technical stuff, even the whole bookkeeping stuff, like then going through all the receipts. That's a full day's work right there. Uh, no, I do everything on my own. And that was where that lesson came from with Soulmate was, yeah. oh, we relied on external uh, outputs to... But do you bring other design agencies or it, it, this is really you and you just rely on yourself to make it happen? No. And then your production facility. Yes. Keeps costs down, which yeah. is great. But yeah. internally, it's constant chaos. We mentioned earlier US, Europe, uh, UK... Are you finding any different challenges in those different markets than what you see here? Surprisingly, from a consumer point, no, the same problem. They're right. all encountering the same problems. Right. And that was actually really, not humbling, but it was really nice to hear that, oh, so the Australian and New Zealand consumers are actually quite aligned, aligned yeah. to what the Europeans are saying and what the Americans are saying. How to manage those is challenging because now all of a sudden I've opened up multiple fronts and so now I'm uh, working with the Europeans a lot closely uh, to ensure uh, that the product is servicing their athletes as to how I've said it would. Thankfully, it's touch wood. That is happening now. All the marketing commitments that we've uh, said that we would do. Uh, so now I'm managing influencers over there and sending out samples to the right athletes to yeah. build that brand awareness up. When we first launched uh, and when we launched with Soulmate, we thought, yeah, the brand awareness is going to be our biggest cost. Yep. The reason why I went with the cheer shoe was because we saw the marketing costs would be significantly lower because the cheer community is very centralized. They're, they're, they're very together. So you don't have to use this spray and pray method. You can actually directly target them. And it sounds like that strategy has worked well. Yeah. And I was actually honestly surprised because when I started door knocking on Australian gyms, I would say, hi, I'm Josh from Trickster. They all knew who I was within six months. Like companies spent millions. Yeah just to get that recognition of knowing who you are. Fascinating story, Josh. I've really enjoyed the conversation and, and clearly you've taken the big company experience, the domain, the Fairfax, and you've applied it to a niche market and you're having some success. How, how would our listeners get a hold of you or, or your product? Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, the website is trickstarcheer.com. So that's T-R-I-X-C-H-E-E-R.com. Uh, that's probably the best way. Phone numbers, emails are there. Um, yeah. So happy to do any follow-ups, respond to anyone's questions. Well, thank you for taking the time. Do you have one final tip for uh, other small business owners on, on how to navigate the failures and successes on the journey? I would say, you know, when everyone says never give up and you'd be like, yeah, okay, I'm not going to give up. But that doesn't help you when you're absolutely going through the ringer and you've made that decision, that, that big leap of faith, that now things are getting really hard. What do you do? 
because you have to keep going and to build that resilience. I used to say to myself, all right, you're going to have a really shitty morning. You've woken up to a few bad emails. You've already copped a couple of punches to the face. Mm. How are you going to keep going? I'm going to break my days down. I'm going to have a shit morning, but I tell you what, I'm going to have a good afternoon. Mm. Now, if, you, if you're having a really bad day or a bad week and your afternoon's horrible, you're going, you know what? We'll get home. I'll have a couple of beers. We'll just attack it again the next day. So by breaking up the days and go, I had a really shitty morning, but at least my evening was quite nice. I got to hang out with my dog. I get to go, I get to, go to the dog park. That really helped. Interesting. When I was going through the ringer yeah. and the pressure was too much to handle. In our business, we call it eat that frog. And it just means if there's something that's really gnawing at you, that's really got that anxiety and that stress level, deal with it because yes. it's not going to go away. Josh, a great conversation. Thank you for your time. Ah, thank you, Chris. Appreciate yeah, it. It's been a pleasure. And best wishes with it. I'm Chris Kendall, and you've been listening to the Anti-Failure Podcast. If you or anybody you know has an interesting story that you would like to tell, head over to our website, aratex.com.au, and look for the Anti-Failure Podcast page. <laughs>